Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Writer and TV producer Peter Pomerantsev takes us on adventures in modern Russia in Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. Peter Pomerantsev is an award-winning TV producer and a contributor to the London Review of Books. His writing has been published in the FT, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy, The Daily Beast, Newsweek, amongst others. He's also worked as a consultant for the EU and the World Bank. And he's the author of Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Adventures in Modern Russia, which is out now in paperback. So, Peter, first of all, thank you very much for coming in and talking to Little Adams today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's talk about, first of all, why Russia, why you ended up in Russia, and then we'll get on to what you did there. I finished university and I wanted an adventure, basically. Russia was tremendously exciting at the start of the sort of 2000s, which is when I went there. It felt like sort of Elizabethan London or Jazz Age New York, a city where it was exploding with new money and new energy, uh, incredible stories everywhere. And, you know, anything that I could do in London or in America felt very tame and predictable, while... Uh, Russia was just a sort of country living on fast forward. I mean, it was, a, it was the middle of this oil boom. I guess Russia and maybe Shanghai were the two... Moscow and Shanghai were the two kind of sort of hot places at that point. And uh, it just felt incredibly exciting. There was never a boring moment. So it was, it was as, as banal as that. I, I went there looking for, for adventure, really. And so you're a TV producer. You're, you're in TV over here. So you went looking for opportunities to get into TV over there. So how did that go about? Well, not originally, actually. No, when I went there, I just finished university. I was working in a think tank. And I would mm. do really boring stuff, like look at customs harmonisation. And that really wasn't quite what I had in mind when I went looking for adventure. And so I quit that. I went to film school there, so I went to Moscow Film School. Uh, then I came back to London very briefly and worked on, on, in TV a tiny bit here and then went back there in 2006 to work with Russian channels, which is sort of the core of the book. So altogether I was there for nine years, four of which I spent sort of working uh, with Russian entertainment channels, not news channels. I mean, it was my job to make 140 million Russians laugh and cry. And so I worked for a channel that sort of helped bring the reality show to Russia and the sitcom to Russia and stand-up comedy and all these things we take for granted. They were kind of pioneering them. So, again, it was incredibly exciting because it was being done for the first time and what could feel quite bland here felt very, very new there. There's a 
distinction you just made there, but I'll say again between the um, entertainment channels and the the news channels. I want to talk about Russia Today a little bit later on, but let's talk about that sort of tension at TNT, which is the channel that you worked at first of all, making entertainment programs. There's a very strict line about the uh, the sort of the news, the topicality stuff at a channel like that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I didn't work. I worked as for a production company, and then as an independent producer with them. I wasn't. I was never staff. Like just like here. Yeah, sure. You don't. Yeah, look, it was an entertainment channel which could do actually quite risque things in its satire. So it did the Russian version of uh, Little Britain, which is a lot better than the version here because it's got a political edge. Uh, So the best sort of sketch, the one that I loved most, was called. uh, It was about the only traffic cop in Russia who doesn't take bribes, and because he doesn't take bribes, he lives a life of penury, Mm -hmm. and his wife is always encouraging him to be corrupt. So it's a lovely little sort of comment on the sort of corruption in Russia. Didn't name names, obviously, no spitting image. You can do stuff like that, but actually, it could be quite socially provocative. And you were meant to be because the whole point was the Kremlin wanted to kind of make sure humor wasn't driven underground. It wanted Mm -hmm. to sort of society. To laugh at the system, but without ever politicising it too much. So, so it wasn't true that we, we did touch on social themes, but never on sort of political ones. And there was, a, there was actually a, a line that wasn't clear, a line that was very, very uh, sort of hard to sort of fathom and constantly shifting depending on what the mood was in the country. So at one point I was making sort of docs about young people, just sort of like what young people care about kind of docs. And um, invariably they, they, I, started, had, I did stories about cops beating up teenagers and people getting called up to the army and having a terrible time of it and abuse in the army, which, which is quite popular because uh, sort of we were a youth-oriented channel and that did very well. So those kind of stories went down well. But then at one point, kind of the mood changed in the country and uh, the economy started falling and suddenly that was like a big no-no. Don't mm-hmm. touch anything that, that is too upsetting. So the line is actually very shifting in these sort of modern authoritarian regimes. Uh, they're much more supple and subtle than 20th century ones even china is is a the chinese government encourage their filmmakers to make gritty social realist dramas they just don't name any names exactly they don't say like it's all because of like uh, the president or something or the secretary of the communist party so so all these contemporary regimes they're much much cleverer in the way they sort of dance around reality and incorporate bits of reality and then spin it to their own uses. I mean, I want to get into that and how they, you know, the regime uses sort of, you know, small sort of artist groups and dissident groups and stuff. They sort of almost, ha- you know, encourage them to do stuff because it, it plays into their own hands. But let's perhaps lay out what that regime is like, first of all. So, you know, Russia is ostensibly now a, a democracy. It has elections. It has an ostensibly free press. But how does it really, how do those things, those sort of institutions really work at the moment? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, they're not, they're kind of, nothing in Russia is what it's called. So the police aren't actually police. They're they're sort of a a semi-criminal organisation that works through a series of protection rackets. Um, The, I don't know, the army isn't actually the army. Its aims are completely different. Uh, and so, so there are elections, but their aims and the way they work have very little to do with elections here, unless you're very conspiratorial about what happens here. But um, the elections. So everybody in Russia knows the elections are rigged. Uh, there's a bunch of candidates who are selected by the Kremlin to sort of play a very specific social role. So on TV, you'll have the crazy right-wing guy who was created by the Kremlin and the crazy left-wing guy rowing in a debating show, which maybe to the untrained eye looks like a normal debating show, but actually the whole point of it is to make both of them look so ridiculous, Putin kind of, like, looks good by comparison. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, same with Free Press. Another one of the institutions I worked for was something called Snob Media, which was created to be the Russian version of the New Yorker meets mm-hmm. sort of a closed Facebook group. The idea was very grand. It was sort of um, uh, funded by Russia's richest man. There was a magazine, website, television station, clubs. The idea was to create a new type of what they call global Russian. And it looks like, I mean, that looks like a, a office that you would find in, like, Shoreditch or something. You yeah. know, it's nice and open plan and there's hipsters and stuff. It's very hipsterish. Uh, lots of sort of sort of converted warehouse, as you would expect. But you get paid a lot better than you would as a, as a hipster here, and um, but at the set, and, and we were encouraged to kind of be liberal. We were encouraged to sort of like say how we say whatever we wanted. Putin's awful corruption in the country. We didn't do any investigative journalism, but in terms of sort of rhetoric, we could do whatever we wanted. Uh, very famous sort of liberal journalists who are now very famous in the West sort of worked there. But at the same time, everybody there was kind of very, very aware that we couldn't be here if the Kremlin had to sort of you know, allowed this very rich guy or even told him uh, to create this. Uh, and, and gradually sort of dawned on us that what was really going on was that we were the ideal liberal opposition to the mm-hmm. Kremlin because the Kremlin could go, oh, look, look at the liberals. You know, they work with some oligarch, they're hipsters, they're global Russians. We would do lifestyle pieces about London and New York, which is completely inaccessible to most Russians. So that's already like a sign saying liberals are over there. You know, they're not men of the people. Putin's fighting them. Same time, it gave liberals the sense that they were needed, that they had a a way to talk to the Kremlin. And, And sure enough, this very rich guy, Mikhail Prokhorov, became a presidential candidate to kind of soak up the liberal vote got a very respectable 14%, and then basically disappeared from the political scene. So his job had been to kind of soak up and contain the Liberals. So you had the same thing with the Communists and the far right and stuff like that. So the Kremlin sort of trying to press all movements. It sort of co-ops every narrative and then moves it into a place that's very convenient for it. It was called managed democracy. Mm-hmm. They, they described it very openly. And, and elections are always funny that way because everybody knows the elections are rigged, everybody knows the final results, and they're really much more sort of a ritual that you go through with the state saying, I am big, I am strong, you can't mess with me. Uh, sort of a, a big, like, a pageant. You know, where you knew the, the, you know exactly who the victor's going to be, and it's almost like a ritual. Everyone has to come up and doff their cap and pretend they're taking part in this. Mm-hmm. Or, or not, a lot of people don't vote. But uh, sort of an, an expression of, of power. So there are media, but, you know, they're very, very, very controlled and directed. And there are elections, but they're not, uh, you know, th- there's no kind of, like, sort of uncertainty to them in any way. And those TV channels that we briefly mentioned earlier, as you know, sort of a, a Russian TV channels that are, you know, for a, a domestic market, I guess. But I want to talk about Russia Today and how that operates, which is a channel that has an international, like a global reach now. Yeah, I mean, well, first you have to, Russian channels have a global reach as well, because there are 90 million Russian speakers outside of Russia. So they already have, and they're actually far more important than anything else. Uh, and they have an incredibly huge audience. Well, had in Ukraine, they've been banned now, but people still watch them. And they were, played a huge role in sort of hallucinating a war into reality in Ukraine. Uh, they're very widely watched in the Baltics. Um, in Central Asia, throughout the former sort of Soviet space, wherever you have Russian speakers. So that is already actually international. Mm-hmm. Russia is much more than, than the Russian Federation. Uh, but what Russia Today and Sputnik, they were kind of launched, they're the Kremlin sort of international broadcasting arm, and they were launched as what looked like basically soft PR exercises. Uh, you know, the Chinese have, you know, CCTV. Uh, and they were fairly inoffensive when they were launched around 2004, 2005. They did mm-hmm. the sort of puff pieces about Russia. Uh, nobody watched them. And then at one point, they kind of, around the Georgian War in 2008, they suddenly became much more aggressive and really... Well, they did two things. 
They actually stopped talking about Russia. They stopped doing shows about Russia. Instead, they did anything that made the West look bad. And then they just started spitting disinformation, just mm-hmm. making stuff up, which helped to, you know, either confuse issues or cloud them or polarise, whatever. Uh, something that was really much less out of a media operation and much more out of a black PR or a secret service type organisation mm-hmm. to sort of, you know spread various sort of uh, rumours, gossip or disinformation for very clear tactical foreign policy and military aims. And that's kind of what they've, they've really become now. Um, they've abandoned, I think, any attempt to really even imitate the BBC, which is what they would do before. Uh, they're, they're doing something different now. Uh, the main thing you have to understand about them, first and foremost, everything in Russia is about the money. So they like to say that they have a massive audience, of 600 million thousand kabillion people. I mean, they, they, they exist in Arabic, Spanish, mm-hmm. whatever, but, but that's not quite true. That's the audience that can potentially watch them. Actually, the audiences are modest. Uh, in America, they're tiny. Uh, in Britain, they've got like 93,000 a week, which is, yeah, that's the same as BBC Parliament. Mm-hmm. That's not too bad. There's more people that listen to this podcast. Well, exactly. So, so they do have an audience, and I think we have to understand who's watching them and why. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's endorsed it, UKIP endorsed it, uh, the BNP endorsed it. There's quite a lot of subgroups that appear on there a lot, get a lot of airtime and kind of endorse it back. Uh, George Galloway's got a show on it. Um, so it's that kind of weird mix of far left and far right. Mm-hmm. Larry King. Larry oh. King as well, sometimes yeah. establishment figures, yeah. Like the like old retired establishment figures as well. Well, they have this. They have this tactic of getting, like, um, not just international presenters in that sort of way, but specifically an international staff, young journalists just out of university, can get a job there, which they wouldn't necessarily be able to do in, in you know, in Washington or London, for instance. Yeah, that was definitely the case. I mean, they're having a bit of a financial squeeze at the moment, from what I understand, because of the crash of the ruble. So maybe that, but that was definitely the way when it launched, and they were playing like you know, thirty-five grand, forty grand to people just out of university, which is, as you know, in journalism, amazing. So. That was definitely the way before. I think now they've, when I sort of was aware of it, they've sort of shrunk to a very minimal facade of Westerners who just have to be the face. Uh, but everything behind the scenes is decided and directed by Russian editors and producers. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a facade. The amount of Westerners there, but you know they have their like various, they have their sort of a certain amount of recognisable faces. Um, but yeah, I would be very careful, Russia today. I mean. A lot of it seems to me is about making Russia look bigger. So it's not actually direct influence. Uh, it's actually part of a package mm-hmm. of like, you know, you buy Chelsea Football Club or, you know, Russia I talk a lot about how energy dependent the West is on it. It's actually a lot less energy dependent once you get into the nitty gritty. But they like to go. The, the idea is to make itself look as big as possible mm-hmm. so that when people start going, you know, why should we fight with these guys over Ukraine? They're big. And there was a big thing in Moscow, I remember. It's a, it's a very Moscow kind of mentality, mm-hmm. a very Russian sort of mentality. I remember uh, in Moscow, you would be able to rent out a bouncer and a chauffeur for an evening when you're going out to a club So because you want to roll up to the club mm-hmm. looking big. It's quite, you know, it's, some of it's quite familiar sort of gangster rap kind of psychology, but it's very, very similar. So I think a lot of it... Uh, we shouldn't over-panic or over-react to some of this stuff. A lot of it is fronting, so to speak.
I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a guy who's central to this. Is obviously Putin, but sort of the man behind Putin is this sort of like more flamboyant Malcolm Tucker figure, Vladislav Surkov. So let's talk about him for a minute. Who is he? Well, Surkov is definitely below Putin. I mean, he's not. You know, he's not in any way behind him. He he features strongly in my book because he just sort of captures the tight guy so well. So he's somebody who uh, is not from the establishment. He studied to be a theatre director. Then he kind of hung out in bohemian liberal crowd in the early 90s, became a PR guy. That was like the hot new thing to do. Worked as a PR guy for, for a very big oil company, then for the big TV channels. Then was one of the main guys on Putin's election in 1999 when he became prime minister. And from then became something officially quite modest, deputy head of the presidential administration, which doesn't sound like much. But actually, he was the guy, it was his job to run media, religion, basically all of culture mm-hmm. and like the soft part of power. I mean, he doesn't own oil companies. He doesn't control the army. You know, that's actually where the real mm-hmm. power lies. He's very much a courtier, but it's up to him to create the whole show of society. So every Friday, the heads of the TV channels would come to his office and, and he'd tell them the script for the next week. You know, what's the story and how you have to play everything. But but he also is a man of great bohemian taste as well. And he writes these sort of postmodern novels about a very cynical PR guy who's into the arts and sort of uh, manipulates society. So basically about himself. And, and there were plays put on and he sponsors modern art festivals. He's a very interesting figure that way. Very much, you know, very much of the dark side, but also... I think genuinely loves sort of modern art and through it kind of gives his version of what's going on. Mm. Uh, though in a subtle way also kind of makes sure that the public intelligentsia are on side. Russians have always been... The Kremlin's always been very obsessed with artists and intellectuals, unlike Downing Street, which never cared. Uh, Stalin was always, we've got to get the poets, we've got to get the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. It's an old Russian tradition. And I guess part of his mission has always been... It's always been about that as well. We've got to be in contact with sort of like, you know, the people who decide fashion literature, arts in this country, and we've got to have them on side so we can work with them. And that's always been his method. Now he's, he, he lost that position after the protests of 2011. That Two other people now deal with that. But he's sort of got a weird promotion. He's now Putin's personal assistant in foreign policy, and he played a very big part in Ukraine, sort of especially in Crimea and breakaway republics, where it was him kind of directing all the sort of Again, the sort of the visuals and the organisational side, so who the prime minister would be of the new republics and who would be the um, the press spokesman, what they would say, uh, what kind of ideology they would have. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of running all that. And he's the now he's the only he's the only kind of non-military security guy you see in these really big meetings that Putin has. So if he's Putin's meeting Merkel or Obama about you know the future of the Ukraine war, it'll be like the head of the armed forces the head of the Secret Services, and Surkov, who's, as always, dressed rather beautifully in Armani suits. and He looks a lot like George Osborne, actually, visually. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's that kind of very icy, sort of dandyish sort of figure. But again, like, it's, it's just Russia... That's the great thing about Russia, is that, is that it, it creates these characters, which, for a non-fiction writer like me, makes you just go, woohoo! Because, uh, I mean, there are lots of nasty regimes out there, but not that many of them have a kind of a, a bohemian, modern-art-loving mm. intellectual kind of like conducting it all and then writing about himself doing it at the same time. And that's what kind of gives Russia its very sort of particular mix of sort of brutal authoritarianism and incredible sophistication. And it's those two things together, which kind of I think you find throughout the book. Uh, that's another character in there who's a, uh, a gangster who mm. decided to become a film director. 
to make films about his own life with himself in the main role and quite a symbolic character for me. But again, someone who, who really kind of got art and movies and psychology in a very sophisticated way, while at the same time being a complete and utter thug. And that, that Russia is very good at being both at the same time. Well, I want to look at Vitaly. When we get to the second half, I want to look at a few more of these characters, so we'll come back to him. But first, a couple of stories, I think, that sort of illustrate, you know, how sort of everyday Russia works for people. And first of all, like, somebody who... There's a guy, an Irish guy, Benedict, who is, like, was in a sort of, you know, similar position to you, ended up there looking for, I guess, looking for opportunity at the time when people from the West were going in there with this idea that we could sort of show... Russia, you know, how things work and how to do it, and that's not how it goes for him at all. So tell us the sort of things that he was doing and, and, and what happened. Yeah, Benedict is, is... I mean, I've changed the name for various reasons, because uh, when you read the book, you realise yeah. why. He's, there's a lot, he talks about a lot of corruption and senior levels of Russian government, and there's uh, the, the publisher's like, we could probably change his name. Um, I had changed a lot of names, actually, because of stuff like that. But, um, yeah, look, he was a... Um, there's a lot of people who went over to Russia... There's a lot of people who came over to Russia from the West at the end of the 20th century and started of the 21st, kind of like these Westerners who were meant to teach Russia how to be a Western mm-hmm. country. So you had all these lawyers who went over. Uh, you had people like me came and taught them how to make TV shows. Uh, and then you had people like Benedict, who was a development consultant, which is a whole sub-industry. So he'd work with local ministries telling them how to reform their whatever, you know, the agriculture ministry to make it more effective. But he ended up, yeah, being taken into kind of like... This journey where, where he very quickly found local sort of medium level Russian bureaucrats were completely sort of gaming the system and, you know, getting all the money from the EU and the World Bank for their various projects and then basically siphoning them away. Or if they had interest, they were completely different to any kind of notions about sort of transition to democracy or whatever he was meant to be helping with. And, and at the same time, this kind of condoned by the West because, you know, on a grand scale, because, you know, we kind of, we wanted to keep... We were worried that any alternative to Yeltsin and then early Putin would be radical communists or radical fascists. We're like, okay, these guys are corrupt, but you know, let's just keep them happy and keep all the money flowing. Uh, and also because we just didn't have any better ideas in a way. So a lot of his frustration in the book is about is is is, is about kind of how the idealism that he once had about Russia making this transition from authoritarianism to democracy was not only being sidetracked by sort of local Russian political corruption, but was kind of okayed and made possible and empowered by the West. But it actually, that makes it sound very dry. It's actually a very fun chapter. No, it's a funny story. And it's, it is interesting that he, he, he just won't go along with it. And often what's funny is that, like, he gets complained about, you know, he's, he's sort of losing jobs because people are complaining about this guy that's just, like, you know, that won't go along with it back to those, you know, sort of yeah. European agencies and stuff. Exactly, exactly. I mean, no one, we kind of see it now with Ukraine as well. I mean, a lot of governments don't want to rock the boat. You know, they have... The political relationship is really just a sort of a very minor part of much bigger financial and diplomatic relationships. And, you know, a lot of countries, they want to rock the boat with Russia. So they're like, you know, let's just, you know, let's hope this Ukraine crisis blows over and then we can get back to normal and, you know, start pumping our oil and and doing incredibly lucrative gas deals. So, yeah, so people like idealists like Benedict kind of got in the way of this larger trend. The other story I want to tell before we finish the first part is the uh, incredible story of um, Yana Yakovleva and what happens to her. Yeah, she's um, she's somebody I made a film about for Russian Channel and she was kind of, you know, almost like a model success story of post-Soviet Russia. So she wasn't from a posh family, but, like, parents were, like, prof- like they were academics, basically. She had a degree in chemistry. Uh, but she was young enough when sort of the Soviet Union ended 
her and a couple of other partners created a small business. It's one of these very boring businesses that makes you a lot of money. It was like, it's very, it's do chemistry. It's buying industrial effluent, uh, which then gets sold to factories as cleaning, clean, as a cleaning agent. But it's one of these really boring things. That one of those things that you wonder how anybody ever yeah, got into it. In yeah, exactly. But, but, but it's like, but it's actually, it's petrochemicals. So yeah. makes, I mean, she wasn't a billionaire. She was just had a nice apartment and like, you know, a nice Range Rover, uh, maybe a nice small place outside outside the city. I mean, probably not even a millionaire, you know. But but just somebody very, but very much kind of part of this sort of. Uh, you know, if the new rush was going to appear, it's going to be this kind mm-hmm. of like smaller medium businesses uh, or medium to large businesses. The problem is, in Russia, at one point, bureaucrats tend to approach you and say, "Give me fifty percent of the company." And actually, it went up. It used to be like ten percent of the company. Then it became forty percent. Now it's apparently sixty or seventy percent. But then, like, so she was approached saying, "You know." give us part of the company. And she was like, no, go away. And so he woke up one morning and uh, he went to the gym, comes out of the gym, she gets arrested. And she was like, she had the sense that like, they'd already come once. Usually it's a, it's a bartering thing. Mm-hmm. You've got to pay them off, whatever. She wasn't too panicked. I mean, this is quite common for bureaucrats to sort of, you know, when they want some money out of you, they'll start scaring you and intimidating mm-hmm. you. So she didn't freak out straight away when she was. She knew that they already wanted something out of her. And she thought, you know, she was about to get into a long negotiation about how to get rid of these guys. But she gets to, and this, this is what she found confusing. So she goes to the DEA's office, the Drugs Enforcement Agency. She's like, what? Uh, and they're like, you were arresting you. She's like, yeah, whatever. And what for? And she's like, for being a drug dealer. She's like, what? And suddenly her whole world disappears. And they're like, yeah, here's the, here's the case against you. And they'd basically taken everything she'd ever done and said it was now illegal. She's like, well, what does this mean? And this isn't a case against me. This is just what I do. This is the, the industrial effluent I, I, I sell. They're like, oh, no, no, there's a new law out. The industrial effluent that you use is now illegal. Uh, and they'd done this for a lot of companies. And basically mm-hmm. a new head of the Drugs Enforcement Agency had come in. And in order to capture a lot of businesses for himself, which is quite common in Russia, he'd sort of changed the law in order to put a pressure on a whole raft of businesses. And she'd come, she'd, she was part of that now. So basically imagine you're selling jeans and you've been selling them all your life. And all your account books say, I have been selling jeans. And suddenly jeans are made illegal uh, and you get done for selling jeans. So that's it's basically that situation. Nothing that she could do could get her out of that situation because the world had moved. Mm-hmm. Reality had sort of shifted. And she was plunged into this nine-month sort of process uh, where she... I mean, they did offer her, like, pay some money, pay some money. She didn't want to. She was really worried that if she starts paying money, they'll... You know, they'll actually catch her on that as, mm-hmm. as well. I mean, she, she didn't want to start playing their game. And she found a good lawyer who said, don't play their game. And basically what she did, she launched a big street campaign because there's a lot of people had been arrested. It wasn't just her. There'd been vets had been arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things they'd, they'd made illegal completely was ketamine, which is, you know, always a funny one, as maybe a few of your listeners know. But basically, like, vets were suddenly, if they were vets had ketamine, they were suddenly accused of being drug dealers, mm-hmm. which is like every vet has bloody ketamine because they use it as a tranquilizer. Uh, so all these vets were arrested or, or people who owned uh, vet, you know, veterinary clinics. So there was a lot of it in the news. This mm-hmm. is like, it was enough of a scandal to filter through. But the reason that she, she organised sort of street protests and the sympathetic people in the news and some journalists who covered it and human rights activists. The thing is, in Russia, you can do all of that and nothing changes mm-hmm. unless somebody at the top wants it to change. You can have a demonstration in Russia. Uh, it just doesn't mean anything. So basically what happened was that the head of the DEA, who was a man of huge ambition, knew Putin from university, was having a very big war with the head of the FSB, which is the former KGB, for territory, for business. Mm-hmm. The agencies often collide. Actually, all the politics in Russia is between power agencies colliding. Mm-hmm. And they were having shootouts. I mean, it got very violent. The, the, the two groups were having shootouts in the airport. I mean, they're having proper wars. And the wars kind of went public, and this was making Putin look bad. 
And so the KGB kind of quietly, very quietly, sort of supported some of her advocacy. And in any case, they didn't shut it down. And they didn't let anyone shut it down. And because the head of the DEA lost his tussle with the head of the KGB, her and a lot of other people were let out eventually. I mean, this had to go through a trial, but essentially that was... Uh, that's the paradox of Russia. I mean, it's very important to do stuff on the ground. You've got to struggle just to give us, you know, give a sign of life. But actually, it's such a centralised decision-making process that if you really want to change something, you also have to win an alliance at the top. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of depressing when you think about sort of revolutionary change or something. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Peter Pomerantsev. We're talking about his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Adventures in Modern Russia. And Peter, I want to well, go back to Vitaly, who you, um, who you mentioned in the first part. Russia seems like, I mean, an incredibly macho culture. I want to look at some of the people, the sort of stories that you tell in the book about some of the characters and look at a couple of men first and then we'll look at some of the experiences of some women and see the sort of contrast. Um, but yeah, Vitaly first, this gangster filmmaker who you already bought up, he's, he's, he's the amazing guy. I know, I mean, he's amazing. He's, he's, I, mean, I got to know him because I was working on a Channel 4 film about him as, like an, as an AP, as an assistant producer. And... Um, 
Yeah, he's amazing and lots of people picked up on his story. I just became friends with him. I mean, I think there were several documentaries make, made about him. So he was... So uh, Vitaly was a thug in Siberia, in the very east of Siberia, near where Russia meets the Pacific, so right opposite Japan. And he made his money. Uh, it was a highwayman, like Dick Turpin. He would wait by the side of the road, wait for a bunch of, you know, a van or I don't know what they're called again, a, sort of a, a, a lorry full of new Mitsubishis to be brought in from, from across, across the sea. And then he would come out and stand in the middle of the road with two sawn-off shotguns pointing at the lorry. And they'd stop and he'd take all the cars. He made a bit of money. Uh, he spent a lot of time in prison. And when he was in prison, he watched TV and all these gangster shows on. And he was like, why is this bullshit? That's not the life of a gangster. I can have some ridiculous actor from Moscow or New York play my life. I know my life. So finally, when he got out in 2000, for, I think for the third time, uh, you know, the mood was changing. Putin was in power. There was kind of a deal that gangsters had to either subordinate themselves to the secret services and work for them or go legit. Uh, it's kind of that era of Wild West had finished. And uh, he didn't want to become a politician, didn't want to go into business. He wanted to be a film director. And he went up to his crew and said, right, no more, no more killing or shooting. We're going to make movies with ourselves in the main roles about our own stories. I'm going to play myself um, and so on and so forth. So he made films about his own life with himself in the main role. And, and they did quite well. I mean, he did hire, like, a cameraman and an editor, but he did learn how to storyboard, you know, what is a good sequence, dramatic turning points. He did le- do all that himself. And they're perfectly watchable. I'm a bit amateur, but, but watchable. I mean, they're very realistic as well. I mean, all the crashes they did themselves. There were no sort of stunt doubles. Um, you know, when, when they did shoot shootouts... Yeah, you know, they did shootouts. Yeah, no, they used real bullets. Because they were like, why would you use fake ones? Uh, and they destroyed the bar. Uh, so, so that was pretty impressive. And pretty much everyone played themselves apart from sort of the main policeman. He had to get actors in for that. But everyone else was... Like, the town ended up being kind of in a, in a film about itself. And, um, you know, when it was ready, they had a sort of a very unique method of distribution. They'd sort of walk into the local TV channels and, you know, go show this or else. And nobody was going to sort of, you know, mess with a bunch of gangsters. So, so they showed it. And it was a huge success. I mean, partly because I don't think people there had ever seen their lives put on film. So they were like, wow, somebody's made a film about us. Even if it's this kind of, like, really, really nasty piece of work. So uh, he became like a Siberian star. And when I got to know him, he was shooting sort of, the second season, mm-hmm. which is about his youth. So he was needing to recreate some parts of history and stuff like that. And then him and I kind of we became friends. We kind of became buddies. Uh, when he came to Moscow, things didn't go that well for him. He wasn't taken seriously in Moscow. He asked me to sort of help make another documentary about him. I would shoot stuff about him for documentaries when I needed it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, he actually moved out of mafia stuff at one point. He was like, the future's in comedy. Nobody wants to see gangster movies anymore. And he started writing these sort of comedy books. And they're quite good. There was one called, I don't know if I can remember the exact title, but something like, I don't know, Empire of Fart, which is all about a really powerful country, i.e. Russia, that dominates uh, the regions all around it through fart gas as opposed to gas. And it's about how they have a fight with a country like Ukraine over gas prices, but it's actually fart gas. It's quite funny. I mean, I introduced him to TNT, and there was even a chance that he'd work with them, but... Didn't, didn't work out for a million and one reasons. I mean, first, he's a gangster. Uh, but, yeah, uh, he was he was strangely... I want to say he was likeable, but, but a fascinating character. And I couldn't help respecting him. I mean, he did learn... He did show you didn't have to go to film school for four years to become a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You could actually just, like, sit in prison for ten and watch a lot of shows and learn all the principles of filmmaking from there. 
But it also seems a good example of, I mean, what's going on. You've all, you've already sort of described how you know after the the fall of communism, Russia goes through certain phases. So there's sort of the gangsterism and the oligarchs and the sort of new money and and people sort of rise and burn brightly for a very very short period of time. But nobody seems to necessarily be able to sustain a long career. Well, we get on in a minute to talk about, you know, some of the some of the women in the book. That becomes even more obvious and apparent. But he, you know, he seems to have, have this sort of career, but then sort of latterly when you're talking to him in the book, he's on his uppers a bit. There's another guy, uh, Gregory, Gregory, who had these like, sort of bizarre parties where he's got oh, he's some doing, sort of he's, like... Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's doing really well. He's here. Mm, yeah, well, I was going to say, he, yeah. he eventually sort of starts to be, you know, now people are sort of, I guess, abandoning Russia and, and try, you know, people that, like, he's always, he's having these amazing parties, but he's always having to have, you know, bodyguards and stuff, and he's sort of lamenting that, and, and then sort of ends up, one of the people that sort of ends up in London as well. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was a, actually, to be honest, people like Gregory, I arrived in Russia in 2001, 2002, they're already telling me, what on earth are you doing here? This country will end up in some version of dictatorship. And I was like, are you stupid? It's, 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 it can only help, but it can only develop. Look at all those huge human financial creative. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.